IPI Freedom Dialogues, Turkey. Join the conversation on the future of quality journalism. Welcome to Freedom Dialogues, Turkey. I am Cansu Çamlıbel. Freedom Dialogues is brought to you from Istanbul by the International Press Institute, IPI. I am a journalist. I am a Turkish journalist, proudly running an independent website. And I am willfully working on the National Committee of the IPI, which has been putting great efforts to push governments all around the world to better the conditions of journalists and journalism. With this bi-monthly podcast, we're aiming to focus on the press freedoms and freedom of expression issues in Turkey as well as around the world. We would like to raise awareness and hopefully attract a broader support for the cause of journalism, which has been under huge challenges globally. Today, I have a guest to discuss a horrendously iconic case which demonstrates the dangers we are exposed to as journalists who try and continue to speak up ugly truths about domestic and global politics. I am talking about the case of late Jamal Khashoggi. UN Special Rapporteur Agnes Kalamar is here with me. Rapporteur Kalamar, it's an honor to have you on the Freedom Dialogues. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. I know that it's been a very busy week for you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much to have invited me. It's a pleasure to uh, contribute to the podcast and to the work of IPI. Two years passed since our Saudi colleague, journalist Jamal Khashoggi, was brutally murdered at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Certainly very painful two years for his loved ones and colleagues. And of course, the pain doubles when one sees that justice still has not been served. Saudi Arabia has failed to name or hold responsible the mastermind or masterminds behind the killing of Jamal. And of course, the Saudi crown prince is still regarded as an honorable member of the World Political Summits. I must say that he is especially flattered by President of the United States when necessary. This level of hypocrisy we have been witnessing is, I should say, indescribable. Rapporteur Kalamart, I would like to ask you to walk us through your investigation on the murder of Jamal before we get into the details of what has not been done, first by the Saudi government and second by the international community for justice. Well, thank, thank you very much. You know, my investigation began officially in January 2019. In the months that followed Jamal's first disappearance and then killing, I was reflecting upon who could internationally investigate that killing. And it struck me that, you know, if no one else did, if there were no official appointment 
to do so, then I could, through the, the mandate that has been attributed to me by the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, and by um, the end of the year, 2018, the beginning of 2019, I understood that the Secretary General will not proceed with appointing a special panel of investigators, and I therefore determine I will I try to provide a human rights perspective on the killing of Jamal Khashoggi by investigating what had happened. My first stop in that investigation was, of course, Turkey, the crime scene. I there was able to meet with a range of people, friends of him, of his wife, fiancé, Atiche Sengis, officials, people who investigated the crime uh, from the police and intelligence side, people who investigated the crime from the media side. And this first uh, visit was followed by many others in the U.S., in European capitals uh, and other places where I was trying to cross-check the information I had gathered in Turkey. And as you know, part of the evidence for the crime of uh, Jamal Khashoggi is actually intelligence. And there is a big difference between what police will consider as evidence or court of law and the intelligence uh, gathered by secret uh, services. So it was important for me to really ensure that this intelligence had been analyzed by others than those who had initially extracted it. And that's why I spoke with a number of individuals or representatives who had had access to some of the intelligence so that I could ensure that the reading made by the Turkish authorities were very much in keeping with others' uh, readings. So there was a lot of double-checking and triple-checking, triangulation of information, as we say. And then that was followed by much legal work. And by this, I mean that if you have read the report, you will see that, of course, half of the report is providing fact information that I have gathered, but the other half is really interpreting the fact from the standpoint of international law and in particular international human rights law. I did that and reported back publicly on my findings in the middle of June uh, 2019. My report received a great deal of attention from around the world. It did not receive the attention I would have hoped from Saudi Arabia, which seemingly failed to even read the report. So their critique and their attacks remained extremely general. At no point did they focus on one particular issue. They suggested only at some point that I had relied on media sources, which could not have been further away from the truth, as I explained in the report and as I explained to them as well through various public uh, statements. Um, so that, you know, in, in a nutshell, what happened between um, December 2018 and June 2019. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a lengthy report, and I read it myself then and now. But for our audience who did not really have the chance to read the report and also to follow your work on the matter, as far as we know, there were five people, uh, five hitmen. They were sentenced to 20 years of imprisonment in Saudi Arabia. But then the problem that you're trying to underline here, immunity or impunity, to the real perpetrators who gave the order to these hitmen. 
The report I produced, the investigation I conducted, focused on the evidence. And out of this evidence and the human rights interpretation, I had absolutely no doubt in concluding that the killing of Jamal Khashoggi was a state killing. By this, I meant that it was organized, planned, resourced, and ordered by the state, and that the notion that the killing of Jamal Khashoggi was a rogue operation, which was the uh, position advanced by President Trump and Mohammed bin Salman, that notion did not work when confronted with the fact and when confronted with international law. You know, I explain in the report, looking at the jurisprudence and the standard on state responsibilities that there was absolutely no doubt, and I wish to insist on that, no doubt that the responsibility of the state of Saudi Arabia was involved. So that's the first step. Once we have determined that a state is responsible for a human rights violation, there should be a second step, which is one driven by criminal law, i.e. who within the state is liable for that particular crime, for that particular violation. In the context of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the responsibilities on one level were very straightforward. They were the responsibility of the 15 individuals that were sent to Turkey for this special operation, and in particular, the responsibility of those five individuals who were in the room at the time of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, although there were more people involved in the operation. So those are the so-called hitmen. But an operation of this nature is not only the responsibility of those who actually executed it. It is also the responsibility of those who organized it, who paid for it, who incited it, and who ordered it. We had some evidence of who was involved in the 24-48 hours that preceded the arrival of the special team in Istanbul. We know for a fact, in particular, that Saud al-Qatani, a special advisor to Mohammed bin Salman, met with that team of 15 individuals and incited them to go to Istanbul and, and uh, in fact, bring back Jamal Khashoggi because he was a threat to national security. So we knew factually that someone else was already involved, Saud al-Qatani. Unfortunately, the Saudi Arabian investigators and then trial failed to include Saud al-Qatani in the trial and among those accused, even though the prosecutor himself had named Saud al-Qatani as having incited, at the very least, the special operation. But it's very unlikely that the process stopped at Saud al-Qatani. Because of the political context in Saudi Arabia, and here we get more into circumstantial evidence rather than material evidence, circumstantially, I think you will find no one who knows very well how Saudi Arabia functions that would argue that Saud al-Qatani would have made a decision on his own. Saud al-Qatani had, in fact, himself 
in the past explained repeatedly that he was always acting on the order of people above him. And the people above him is basically the crown prince. So circumstantially, we know that the responsibility of the crown prince is involved. We don't have at this stage the material evidence linking him to the crime, but there is no doubt under human rights law that somehow his liability is involved either because he ordered the crime, which would be the most extreme form of responsibility, or at the very least, because he failed to prevent it. This is why the CIA assessment of the Crown Prince responsibility is for me such an important issue. Your listeners may recall that the CIA early on stated via some senators that the Crown Prince had ordered the crime and the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, but then the actual document, the assessment done by the CIA of that responsibility was never made public. I have been insisting since the beginning of my investigation that it is incumbent upon the CIA or indeed the US government to release this information to make it public uh, so that A, it can be assessed and two, more truth can be delivered on the responsibility for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. That's a very important point, actually. And when this all happened, I was living in Washington, D.C., in the United States. And I remember the day the CIA director, Gina Haspel, went to the Senate and informed Mm -hmm. in a classified briefing the U.S. senators on the matter, just as you explained. And... On that day and on the following days, I remember some of the senators came up after the meeting being extremely careful about the content of the evidence that was presented to them, but they still said that they had no doubt at all that this was a deliberate and politically organized murder. But then, as you said, publicly, the U.S. administration or the CIA, they did not take such a position. Would you say that the U.S. intelligence on the killing and the Turkish intelligence that was provided to you was parallel? The Turkish authorities were very careful, at least with me, about the knowledge they had on who ordered the killing. At no point were they in a position to provide me any kind of evidence regarding the high-level responsibility for the crime. Of course, I asked repeatedly, but they always, their position was that they did not have the information. And it was hinted to me that maybe others had the information, such as the United States. Within the United States, of course, I tried to get access to some of this information. I could not. It was uh, very sensitive. And as you may know, If anyone was to reveal the nature of the briefing that they received from the CIA or that they may have gotten access to, this would be a very serious crime under U.S. law, Mm -hmm. you know, a crime under national security law. And I kind of understand why nobody wants to take the risk of revealing that particular information. So while it is possible that off record, I may get a, a few details, it would not be appropriate for me to, to talk about that. So at this point, yes, 
what I do know about the Turkish investigation, including the evidence that they gathered regarding the killing, uh, such as the method of the killing, the identity of those in the room at the time of the killing, and so on, that analysis of the intelligence is backed up by others who have been given access to that particular intelligence. So other intelligence agencies were given access by Turkish intelligence agency of the recording that they had, and those other agencies, at least to me, backed up the analysis made by Turkey of the recording. So on that level, at least I am satisfied that A, I have acted with due diligence in terms of cross-checking the information. And I should add that even the Saudis themselves did not contradict the Turkish analysis of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. The main contradiction or the main opposition reside in whether this crime qualifies as a state crime or whether it is just, as the Saudis argued, a rogue operation. And there too, during the trial, some of the accused have insisted that they were acting upon order. So, you know, I think there are not too many contradictions or not too many tensions or differences of views as to what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. I think there is an overall consensus around what, what happened in that, in that room, what was done to Jamal, and therefore, by implication, on the premeditation and organized nature of the crime. Coming back to what you said earlier about Katani, you said that he met with the team that was going to fly to Istanbul, and he was never even mentioned as a suspect by the Saudi. He seems like the strongest connection to the kingdom, to the nature of the crime if we are talking about a state crime or state-sponsored crime. And Mm -hmm. you said that he wanted the team to bring Jamal back to Saudi. So my question is, from your investigation analysis of the previous investigations and intelligence, the initial plan, was it to bring back Jamal or to kill him on the spot? Because there are also accounts or at least reports that I saw from the Turkish side, implying that they actually did not want to kill him in the first place, but things went out of hand. Is it really the case? In the report, I explained that, in my view, at least 48 hours before the killing, that killing was planned. And this is just an hypothesis, but there is no way the killing would have been decided at the last minute because that kind of killing required preparation. Uh, You do not dismember a body without having a great deal of tools with you, minimum tools with you, particularly given the fact that there was very little blood splatter in the room. I think um, others would have noticed. In order to dismember the body, they brought into the team someone who is not usually part of the team, a forensic doctor, and there is little doubt that he was brought in the team as part of their determination to kill Jamal and then to dismember him. But I think that decision was possibly taken 
around 48 hours before it actually happened. One hypothesis that I have, based on interviews with a special operations expert, is that the first team that went in Istanbul as part of a reconnaissance mission determined that kidnapping Jamal bringing him out of the consulate may be extremely difficult and therefore there needed to be plan B. And plan B would be to kill him. That was always a possibility. So it is my hypothesis, but I don't know, that when the reconnaissance mission determined that it will be very difficult to kill him, they moved right away into plan B. I think plan B was always an option, but there was a plan A that was eventually rejected. But there is no doubt that all of that was organized and premeditated. The premeditation leaves no doubt. In terms of the nature of the killing, there is no way they could have decided to kill him and get rid of the body the way they did in the spirit of the moment. That had to be planified, organized, and resourced. What would yeah. the international yeah. law suggest? Sure. In this sort of crime. So in terms of cooperation, the first thing I would have expected is for Saudi Arabia to give access to the crime scene to the Turkish investigators right away. And that did not happen. It took almost two weeks before Turkey was able to enter the crime scene. During those two weeks, there were a team of some, I think, 18 Saudis who were flown in Turkey to supposedly investigate. In fact, it seems clear that what they did was clean the crime scene. So that is not cooperation. It's the opposition <laughs> to cooperation. It's actually obstruction of justice. So the first thing I would have expected is giving quick access to the crime scene, to the Turkish authorities, uh, cooperate with them throughout the investigation without cleaning the crime scene and obstructing the work of the Turkish authorities. And I should also remind the listeners that the Turkish investigators were given access to the crime scene not only two weeks after the crime, but during their investigation, they were sharply limited in terms of what they could do. They only had a few hours to do their investigation. There were a lot of things that they were not allowed to do by the Saudis, even though they were not likely to break any kind of confidential secret issues through their investigation. So there was no justification on the part of Saudi Arabia to prevent the Turkish to, for instance, look the uh, below a carpet, which they could not do. So the investigation by Turkey was extraordinarily limited by the decisions, which was a state decision, a Saudi state decision, to prevent a proper, effective and thorough investigation by Turkey. So that's the first thing. I mean, just on that first step, cooperation failed. Subsequently, as Turkey was continuing to investigate and increasing, getting access to a number of evidence, 
they now have asked to meet and to speak and indeed now to try in absentia the those that they are accused of having perpetrated the crime. There too, there is no cooperation on the part of Saudi Arabia because those individuals have not been extradited. Now, Saudi Arabia may argue that uh, Turkey is not cooperating with them because they are not giving them access to the intelligence or whatever. Yes, that may well be the case. But given what happened the first two weeks, months, when Saudi Arabia did everything they could to clean the crime scene, eliminate any kind of evidence and prevent access to the crime scene, I think, you know, in in no way are these good starting points for any kind of cooperation. And I personally will be very reluctant to cooperate supposedly with a country whose objective has been so far to, to erase evidence and to argue that the responsibility of the state is not involved. Reporter Kalamart, I have a different question. Mm-hmm. How much of this decision to kill Jamal had to do with the fact that he was a journalist? If he was a vocal critic, but he was not a journalist, Would he still be subject to such a horrible attack? He was uh, killed because he was a journalist working for the Washington Post, an American media outlet with a great deal of international influence. He was attacked because he used his column to raise critique very sharp critique, but also very balanced critique of what was happening in Saudi Arabia. He was attacked because he had a great deal of legitimacy in his own country. Many followers on uh, social media, people respected him and people believed him. He was a man of the system. You know, he was never associated with any kind of radical movement contrary to what has been argued so you know for all those reasons he was a threat in addition to that after moving to in exile he also chose to not only use his pen to raise alarm about the situation in Saudi Arabia but he also decided to work with others particularly dissident on a number of projects which meant or which sought to counter the uh, Saudi propaganda in Saudi Arabia and abroad. So as he progressively became more engaged, determined to be acting and not only speaking or writing about democracy, I think the threats he represented increased. So it's a combination of all those that prompted the authorities to include him on the list of those they wanted to silence. But it was quite ironic for me as a Turkish journalist to witness those days when the Turkish authorities went ahead with the investigation and the Turkish government, of course, rightfully stood against killing of a journalist. I say it was ironic because so many of my colleagues in Turkish and Kurdish are jailed by the same government as we speak. So my question is actually, what kind of message this killing of Jamal Khashoggi sent to the authoritarian leaders and governments around the world in terms of tackling with the, with the journalists? 
with the journalists yeah. they think they consider as problems? So the first thing I said, I will say that, yeah, I fully agree with you. I also raised the issue in my report that most unfortunately, because of its own track record, Turkey had little legitimacy raising, carrying forward the search for truth in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. That was unfortunate that it did not have, in my view, the legitimacy to do that internationally because of all the journalists and others that were arbitrarily detained in um, Turkish prison and continue to be arbitrarily detained. So there is no doubt that in Turkish mind, at least the authorities, they were acting out of, and I, I fully understand it, anger that Saudi Arabia would have done what they did on their territory and then tried to attribute the responsibility for the crime to Turkey. That being said, of course, um, it is an obligation placed upon Turkey to investigate the killing of Jamal Khashoggi because it took place on their territory, and I am glad that they are doing it. But I would be even gladder if they were to release the journalists that are arbitrarily detained, everyone that is detained for their freedom of opinion, freedom of conscience, or freedom of expression. The authorities, Saudi authorities, never expected the killing of Jamal Khashoggi to become the international issue it had come. They were, they were, did not think that Atiche will be outside the consulate. They probably, and they should have, maybe not expected that the consulate will be under surveillance. Anyway, I really think they never thought that the killing of Jamal Khashoggi will reach to the level that it did. Because of the reactions, because of the investigation by international and Turkish media, because the media kept the killing on the agenda of the international community, because of my own investigation, because Turkish government made a decision to also keep the issue on the international agenda, because there were so many people in the United States, including within the U.S. Congress, that were outraged uh, beyond belief with what had been done. For all those reasons, I think the message has been sent to authoritarian leaders that there is a cost, that if they are going to do something as awful and dramatic as killing a journalist, they must be prepared to pay a cost for it. I, at least, am among those who think that over the last two years, Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia have actually paid a price for what was done to Jamal. There is no way that the reputation of Mohammed bin Salman now, as compared to what it was before the killing, is the same. There is nothing he can do without the name of Jamal Khashoggi being thrown at him. There is no meeting he can organize with some degree of international scrutiny without the name of Jamal Khashoggi being brought back into the conversation. So he has been deeply, deeply tarnished by the killing. So I think in many ways, the public attention, the international attention, and the continuing, at least, public statement. You know, two weeks ago, 
33 states adopted a resolution condemning Saudi Arabia for the killing, for the arbitrary arrest, and so on. I think because of that, the message to authoritarian leaders is actually a positive message in that it is telling them there is a cost. Yes, you may continue to do business, particularly if you are as influential as Saudi Arabia, but do not expect to get away with it. There will be cost, there will be a price attached to it. Um, and this is a message that we need to keep hammering. This is why whenever there is an opportunity to demand accountability for Jamal, to demand that members of the international community boycott the G20 meeting and so on, we need to do it because that's part of sending the message to all authoritarian leaders that they cannot get away with it. As you probably know, uh, there are at least, to my knowledge, five mayors so far, New York, Los Angeles, Paris, and London, so four, maybe more, that have decided to veto one of the meetings that is being organized as part of the G20, organized by Saudi Arabia. That is part of sending signals to the Saudi authorities that people are reacting and people are taking action. You know, yes, the White House is continuing to defend MBS and Saudi Arabia. Some other governments are failing to really act on their words, but yet there are other things done. There are other messages being sent and people who can act, for some of them acted. So I don't think Saudi Arabia got away with it untarnished. I don't think Saudi Arabia did not pay any price for the killing. And I think they are continuing to pay a price. It is not as high as many of us want it to be, but it is part of an important message to the international community. You cannot fully get away with killing a journalist. I hope that message is heard around the world loud and clear. That's my wish. Reporter Kalamar, thank you so much. I could go Thank on for hours. Much. Thank you. I could go on for hours, but I know you have yeah. to go. You have a very busy day ahead of you again. This podcast was produced with the financial support of the European Union. However, IPI has the sole responsibility of the content. Discussions and views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views of the European Union.